The book of Revelation is a strange book. It's kind of like the weird uncle of the Bible. You accept that he's part of the canon. He's part of the family. You invite him to all the holiday events and reunions. But you don't want to get caught in a long conversation with him because he'll start spouting off about dragons and prostitutes and locusts and people who breathe fire out of their mouths and all these types of things. But I think that Revelation is one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. There are about as many interpretations of Revelation as there are commentaries. It's not an easy book to interpret. In fact, it's so difficult that John Calvin himself took a hard pass and didn't write a commentary on it. But Revelation is not a book of secret codes and elaborate charts meant only for chain-smoking conspiracy theorists ranting about Russian helicopters in their basements somewhere. In fact, this might surprise you, but the book of Revelation isn't about the future at all, at least not from our perspective, and we'll get to that in this series. But Revelation, above all, is meant to be a book of blessing. In verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So if we reject reading or understanding or trying to interpret Revelation because it's hard, that's not going to cut it. One, because God wrote it, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's part of the canon, it is profitable for us, and if we ignore it because it's difficult, frankly, we're being disobedient. We're rejecting part of God's holy word. But second, this is a book of blessing. It's meant to be heard, done, and embraced because it is a book of hope. It is something to steal our nerves and give us endurance and encouragement in times of suffering as the church. John the Apostle, the writer of this book, who also wrote the Gospel of John, receives four visions from God to the suffering church to strengthen them with this message, that Christ reigns. In their suffering, in all their tribulations, in all their difficulties, Christ reigns and he is with them. That's the message of Revelation. This is Understanding Revelation. Before we start this journey through the book of Revelation, I want to give two disclaimers. First, I'm taking what is admittedly the minority view in the Christian tradition. I'm putting myself at odds with Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, John MacArthur, John Piper. I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know why I would want to disagree with them, but here I am. But I take comfort in the fact that the late, great R.C. Sproul agrees with me, along with other wise and thoughtful, brilliant commentators. But I also want to say that this is not the Orthodox Christian position, that believers in good conscience, great, godly, wonderful believers, believers much smarter than me disagree with me, and that's fine. This is something that believers can disagree over charitably. Second, this is not the official teaching of Four Oaks Midtown or Four Oaks Church. It's not even the official teaching or the same perspective as all the pastors on staff or the leadership. This is strictly from my perspective. That being said, I do think the position that I take, that really I'm standing on the shoulder of giants, it's not really unique to me or original to me. A lot of this is just from studying some other great thinkers. I think that this perspective gives the most cogent, cohesive reading of Revelation. I think it does honor to the Old Testament imagery. I think it does honor to the intention of the book and the historical circumstances of the book. So I think that this is the best way to read Revelation. Otherwise, I wouldn't be taking that position. I could change my mind at some point, but just want you guys to know this is 
something that might strike you as odd, but I think it does hold water. And as with all things, make sure you read the scriptures yourself and you think about it yourself and you wrestle with it and you look at different perspectives and, and be convinced in your own mind. The book of Revelation is a revealing. It's meant to show us something. The Greek word behind revelation is apocalypse, which is about a divine revelation, a divine exposing of something that was once hidden or maybe obscured. And that's important because the early church is suffering. They're being thrown out of synagogues. They're poor. They're very small. They don't know if they're going to make it at another generation. And John gives them these visions, or rather God through John gives them these visions to encourage them that they're on the right side, that God is with them. They're not alone, that they are going to see victory, but that victory will come the same way it came for Christ through the cross of suffering and then the glorification of resurrection and ascension. Now, Revelation is not just about events, but it's also about a person. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's why we see in the very first chapter, this portrait, this vivid portrait of Jesus Christ resurrected and glorified. But at the end of Revelation, we see another portrait of the church glorified as well. So Revelation is not just the revealing of events, but also the person of Christ and not just Christ, but also his glorified bride. So all of these elements come into play. It's working on multiple levels. And that means we have to understand Revelation on multiple levels. Now, John the Apostle, who is the author of the book, is writing during a time of exile on the island of Patmos. And he's writing saying that he's part of this time of tribulation, that he is suffering along with the church in some historic circumstance of persecution, which I think is the time that the Emperor Nero was persecuting the early church. But we can talk about that later. And what he sees is Christ reigning. He sees Christ glorious. And that is meant to encourage the church. Revelation gives a God's eye view of human history. And that this infant church, this first century church, is going to face its greatest test of suffering. But it will overcome because this glorified risen Christ is with them. So pay attention as I read Revelation chapter 1 to the distinct imagery of Christ and how that is meant to give confidence to these suffering believers. Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day 
And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation chapter 1 opens with John promising a blessing to those who hear this prophecy. And then it moves to a greeting to the seven churches that are in Asia, which he's going to talk directly to in chapters 2 and 3. And John begins with all these descriptions of Christ, and it's notable that the descriptions are threefold. God's name is threefold. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come, which signifies his unchanging nature. His being is triune. John sees God, the seven spirits, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit, drawing off of Isaiah chapter 11, and Christ, the glorified Son of Man. Christ himself bears three titles. He's the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. God's work of redemption is threefold. He loves us. He's freed us by Christ's blood, and he makes us a kingdom of priests. We are citizens of a kingdom, and as priests, we represent God to the nations. Now, if you asked John if he believed in the Trinity, he might give you a strange look. He might give you a blank stare, because that's not a word that he used or was in his vocabulary. But if you asked him if the Father was God, the Spirit was God, and the Son was God, he would give you a hearty amen. He has a Trinitarian theology, and you see it in his poetic writing, in his symbolic imagery. He clearly sees that the throne of God is occupied by the Spirit of God, the Father, and the Son of Man. The Trinity is here in seed form, and we see this with the emphasis on the number three. Now, he moves from this initial opening to the actual vision, Before he moves to the vision, he talks about how the Son of Man is coming on the clouds or coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, this is really the thesis of the entire book, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, him bringing his judgment. This is where things get tricky. Traditional interpreters read this as a prophecy of the future as it relates to us. So the coming of the Son of Man on a cloud or with a cloud is the second coming of Christ. But there's a problem. John writes Revelation saying that this book is about things soon to happen. They're right on top of us. Revelation is not about our future, but his. What will happen in his near future already happened in our past. 
So this is not about the second coming. In fact, the majority of Revelation is not about our future, but our past. Some parts of it are about our future, and we'll get to that. But this is maybe a reading that you haven't heard before that is going to be important in understanding the signs and symbols in the context of Revelation, that John is symbolically interpreting events not thousands of years in the future, but very, very near. So something cataclysmic is about to happen, and Revelation is chronicling the events leading up to that massive event. Now, we have a world-shaking judgment in history recorded. That's the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Romans in 70 AD. Why would this be earth-shaking? Because Jerusalem serves as the center of Israel's life, and the temple operates as the center of that center. If there's no temple, there's essentially no Judaism. And their destruction signifies the transfer of God's work in the world from Israel to the church. Or rather, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The old covenant order centered around the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood is going to be brought to fulfillment by being removed and fulfilled in Christ's perfect sacrifice, his high priesthood, and his body being the temple. Now, this event may mean little to us, but it meant the world to Jesus. I mean, this is essentially like saying the White House is going to be blown up and replaced. Right Now, Jesus himself prophesied that the temple would be destroyed within a generation as a sign of his coming. This is Matthew 24, 30 in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. So Jesus is walking with his disciples and he points to the temple, the center of their life, the center of their religious life where God's supposed to dwell. And he says that whole thing is going to be torn down. And his disciples are like, are you crazy that, that you're talking? That's insane. And they're like, well, Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? When will your coming happen? And when will the end of the age happen? Now, the disciples are linking those three together. They're saying that the coming of the Son of Man, the destruction of the temple, and the end of the age are referring to the same time period, which means when Jesus foretells of the Son of Man coming, and when John speaks about the Son of Man coming, it can't be talking about the second coming of Christ. And what we see here is that in Matthew 24, Jesus actually tells his disciples there are all these chaotic political upheavals and wars and bloodshed and all this crazy stuff and persecution is going to happen before my coming, the destruction of the temple, and the end of the age. So he, why, why, would he, why would he tell them about this stuff if they're not actually going to see it? And the real clincher is he tells them you're going to see all these things, including the Son of Man, within a generation. That this generation won't pass until these things are accomplished. Now, either generation means his present generation, or it's got to be stretched to include thousands of years. But I think if we take the text seriously, Jesus is not talking about a massive future event, but a massive event in their near future, something that's going to happen within a generation, just like he said. And 8070 is 40 years after the ascension of Christ. Within a generation, the temple fell. The Son of Man came, and we'll talk about what that means, and the end of the age happened. Not the end of the world in terms of its physical constitution, but the end of a world happened. The end of the Judaic world, the world in which Israel and the temple and the priesthood was the center of God's people. That whole world has faded away. The new covenant, New Testament world has been born into history. So now that we have the context of verse 7, again, Coming of the Son of Man is matching on to Jesus' own prophecy about the destruction of the temple within a generation. John is talking about things that are about to happen, that are happening soon. We can piece together this puzzle. 
Verse 7 is actually a composite of two Old Testament passages, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, and Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. So we got to get this part straight too. The coming of the Son of Man with a cloud. That is a reference to Daniel 7, 13, 14, which prophesies a glorified Son of Man who goes before the Ancient of Days, which is God, to receive a kingdom and all authority. Now, the direction is important. The Son of Man is on a cloud going before God. In other words, the direction is up, not down. He's going to God. He's ascending. He's not going from God. He's not descending. So the coming of the Son of Man on a cloud in Daniel's context is not the second coming of Christ, but it is rather Christ going up to the Father and receiving all power and kingdom and authority. Well, what event matches onto this? It's the ascension. It's Christ after his resurrection, ascending up to the Father. Now, this helps us interpret the rest of the book. This is about the effects of Christ's ascension and what that has done to the cosmic order. And then John quotes Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, which says that after the pouring out of the Spirit, uh, the Israelites are going to look upon the one whom they pierced. And so this is essentially what happens. Actually, Jesus in Acts, he tells the high priest that he's going to see the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And the high priest was involved in the piercing of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. So all of Jerusalem who rejected Christ are going to see Christ ascend. And then that's going to be the sign of their impending judgment. So in other words, Jesus said the temple's going to fall. That shows that I'm a true prophet. The Israelites of the time rejected his prophecy. They're going to be proven wrong when the city is destroyed. And they're going to see that the ascension of Christ was the sign that he really was who he said he was. And Zechariah is playing off of that. Now, one important thing is that in a lot of these passages, you're going to see the word earth in your translation. The word earth can also be translated land. And in fact, I'm going to take the perspective, and I think there's backing for it, that it should be translated land. Because all of the Old Testament history and narrative is about the land, the holy land, the land of Eden, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the land of Jerusalem, all this stuff. And so this is a historically specific kind of judgment. So it's not that all the people on the earth see Christ and wail, but it's the people and the tribes of the land, the Israelites, will wail on account of him. And I think that does justice to the original context of Zechariah as well. So let's just put this all together. John is saying that the vision of the Son of Man, who goes up with a cloud before the Father and receives a kingdom and authority and power, is Jesus Christ in his ascension, going up with a cloud to the Father to receive dominion. And the effect of that is it's going to prove that he is a true prophet. He is who he said he was. He is God in the flesh. Because the Jews who rejected him are going to see that his prophecy that the temple was destroyed or will be destroyed is going to come true within a generation. Jesus is a true prophet. And Revelation is depicting in symbolic form the timeline that Jesus lays out in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. If that's confusing to you, we're going to explain that in later episodes. But just when you think about the coming of the Son of Man, it's fulfilling the Daniel vision of Jesus ascending, receiving the kingdom, and that's going to bring about a shakeup in the world. Now, in verses 9 through 20, the final section of Revelation 1, we see Christ in his resurrected and exalted glory. 
John receives this vision on the Lord's Day, an interesting early indication that Christians celebrated and worshipped on Sundays. And John describes Jesus with all kinds of Old Testament symbolism. Symbols function like musical themes that connect different events or characters to a larger story. And so if you're reading this and you're steeped in the Old Testament, you're going to hear all these allusions to the Old Testament, especially Daniel chapter 10. Jesus appears with this long robe, bronze feet, shining face, and that reflects this powerful figure in Daniel chapter 10. He also possesses the hair of white wool like snow and fiery eyes and a roaring voice like many waters. And that's the description of Daniel 7's Ancient of Days. This is fascinating. John is not only saying that Jesus is a son of man that Daniel foresaw, but he's also the Ancient of Days himself, that Jesus is the eternal, true God, the God-man. Now, the next thing that he sees is that this glorified, exalted Christ is walking among the lampstands with seven stars in his hand and a double-edged sword in his mouth. The seven stars are seven angels, which angeloi or angeloi, the Greek word can be translated messengers. And so I actually think that this is about the pastors of those churches. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. And the lampstands are the churches. The lampstands are lit by the fire of the Holy Spirit. And he has the two-edged sword of his mouth being the word of God. So Christ is walking among the churches and he's ministering to them through their angels, through their messengers, through their pastors, and by the word of God that comes out from his mouth. And they're brought to life by the fire of the Holy Spirit. Now a picture emerges as we piece these symbols together. Christ is the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. He's received a kingdom and he dwells with his church in their suffering. And he strengthens them with his messengers and the double-edged sword of his word. Christ, the first and the last, he died and rose again. He has the keys of authority over death and Hades. Now, if the one who controls death is on your side, you don't have to fear death. But there's this terrifying reality too. If the one who controls death and Hades is walking among you, he's going to correct you. He's going to rebuke you. He's going to discipline you. And it's this awe-inspiring vision that brings John to his knees. He's kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He just falls dead. And Jesus goes up to John and he says, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is going to ensure that his suffering church prevails. That Jesus has bought us with his blood. That we are forever within his grace. And he stands among us and by his spirit will bring us through suffering back to him. The great hope that John wants the church to see is Jesus. He is with them. And if you think about the lampstand imagery, lampstands were an essential piece of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple. They were holy objects. In fact, they actually represent trees. It's meant to make the temple a kind of garden, Garden of Eden-like place with God walking among his people. And what we're seeing here is a vision of a heavenly temple. And that's going to play a huge role in understanding the rest of Revelation. The churches are lampstands in God's heavenly temple. And Jesus, in his priestly attire, his long robe, is tending to them. And the Spirit of God is empowering them. Which means all of life is worship. 
that at the center of the universe, if you pull back the veil of your ordinary life, you see that all of creation is meant to worship. All of creation is in this temple in which God has centered all things to give him glory. Do you think about that when you go to church, that you are entering into the heavenly tabernacle of God, that you are being cared for by the high priest Christ, that the spirit of God gives life and breath to your local, ordinary, complicated, difficult church, and that you're a part of this, that life is about worship. There's a liturgical setting for all of this. And that's important to remember. That's a stabilizing force. Politics are crazy. Culture is crazy. Things in your life might be crazy. But this points us to the reality underneath all realities, that Christ is on the throne and Christ is with us. He knows our suffering. He knows our trials. And he is able to help us in our time of need.